0: Hello, I'm Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution, and I'd like to welcome you to the inaugural Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover fellows and friends together to discuss their latest writings. This is our inaugural book club interview, and I can't think of a better choice than the fellow you're about to meet, and that would be Victor Davis Hanson, the Hoover Institution's Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow. Victor is a classicist and the New York Times bestselling author. He's also the columnist for the likes of the the, uh, National Review and American Greatness. And he has a new book that's just been released. The title is The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalism are Destroying the Idea of America. Victor, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Bill. Okay, I always have to ask this question of you anytime I get a chance to, to talk to you. Where do you find the time to write a book? Because you're you're writing several columns a week, you are teaching, you're doing multiple interviews on different subjects. And oh, by the way, you're also running a farm.
1: Yeah, I, not very well as I get older. So uh, I don't have much of a social life. I mean, we live out in the country and I commute to Stanford. Um at Hoover and that's about it and I, I I speak about a couple months out of the year I'm going to go to New York for required book publicity but I don't go out to dinner and I don't at my age I'm in my late 60s I don't have an active social life it's very hard out here in Fresno County yet. so my neighbors are all farmers and they go yeah. to bed at six <laughs>
0: And quickly, Victor, for those people out there who are curious about how one writes a book, I've, I'm curious about this myself. I've written scores and scores of columns over my life, but that's 800 or 1,000 words. Those are sprints. You are doing something, it's a long haul. How does one write a book, Victor? Is it just, is it sitting down and just writing and writing until you drop or do you just visit it and revisit how do you, How do you go about doing it? Well, I have a different method.
1: I come up with an idea and then I don't write down anything. I spend six months just reading. And sometimes I take notes or I put a little slip in the in books that I think interesting ideas that I've come across. Mm-hmm. And then once I've done that, I just sit down and I, I type out, say if the book is 150,000 words, I'll type down 80,000 words. I'll just mm-hmm. get it in my head and just write nonstop, maybe for six weeks straight, 10 hours a day. And then... I spend the next year going back and refining that and going back through all my slips of paper and, and footnoting and refining and rejecting, adopting, changing, adding. It's mm-hmm. kind of like an onion. Yeah. And then I go back and read one. I'll read one draft for prose style, one graph draft, uh, draft, uh, for documentation, one for argumentation. And I just keep doing that. And so it, it, I can, I always say, you know, I, I, I because I've farmed, I always try to be s- systematic in the sense of, if you somebody says, well, why don't you write a book about the Peloponnesian War, World War II, I always think to myself, okay, that's about $3,000, 40 hours a week, 50, you know, 52 weeks a year, 2,000 words, and then another half year, do you have that time, and what are you going to give up? Are you not going to speak, or are you not going to write it? book reviews anymore you're not going to go out to dinner what is it going to do but I don't just say I'm going to do it and then not do it and so at my age it means also do you really want to sit like we're sitting now eight hours a day rather than work in the yard or go swim or hike or something so but I don't think most people they're not so calculated and I don't mean that as a compliment to myself you, you get older you don't have that
0: much time to do anything Right. Very good point. Let's get into the book, Victor. Uh, I'd like to read a quote uh, from what you wrote to you and get your thoughts here. Here's what you wrote, quote, citizenship is not an entitlement. It requires work, yet too many citizens of republics, ancient and modern, come to believe that they deserve rights without assuming responsibilities, and they don't worry how or why or from whom they inherited their privileges. Well, the
1: There's an intrinsic paradox, Bill, in citizenship, and citizenship, in some sense, is the manifestation on the personal level of a constitutional system, whether that's a democracy or constitutional or consensual republic. And I think what happens is they tend to favor open markets, free markets, private property, individual freedom, and they create a lot of leisure and uh, material affluence, and that requires a the success of them. This requires a lot of Discipline community discipline family discipline traditional discipline right. religious discipline. So you don't satisfy the appetites that you're able to satisfy if you choose So if you look at Petronius the satiricon, the world that he's writing about in 60 AD It's a world away from what Livy is trying to describe mm-hmm. During the Punic Wars or when you look at EB sledge with the old breed at Okinawa and then you look at things that are coming out of popular culture today they're very different and right. so we we don't inculcate our kids with civic education we find that too simple or too unnuanced nuanced or something but these societies evolve and they get more sophisticated more complex but they lose their core values because of the temptations of so much money affluence opportunities you don't have three channels you have 500 you
0: know All right. Now I'd like to offer a second uh, pull quote from your book, Victor. You wrote, quote, citizenship in the United States is now being pulled in two different and often antithetical directions from below and above spontaneously and yet by design through both ignorance and of intimacy with the constitution.
1: Yeah, I I divide the book in two halves. One is I call the pre-modern forces and one of the post-modern. Pre-modern are things that just organically happen. And that is I don't think anybody said I want to destroy the middle class, but there were forces of globalization and policy and trade that did do that almost. Mm-hmm. And the open border is sort of a migratory phenomenon of poor people coming into richer places when they don't enforce the border controls. Same thing with tribalism. That's a natural affinity. It's one of the oldest and most dangerous affinities that humans have to self congregate or to self-select by the basis of superficial appearances and that's on the that's that's the pre-modern natural things that war against a citizen a citizen is a middle-class person most of all. citizens have borders they want to have a unique space uh, in which they cultivate their customs and traditions and values and then they give up their racial or ethnic identity as their primary identity and they accept a civic shared identity that's not based on race or religion. And then finally, there's the second half is post and these are people who actually know what they're doing and they're right. deliberate, and that's the growth of the administrative state. Uh, a, a system that gives us the FBI or the CIA or the IRS or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, so a General Milley or Lois Lerner or James Comey or James Clapper or John Britt, they can do things that are not checked by uh, and they're not elected they're judge jury executioner or legislative judicial um, executive powers all in one then we have the evolutionaries these are very sophisticated academics activists and they feel you know human nature is malleable fluid right. right it's changed we're no longer 1776 or 1787 let's get rid of the electoral college let's get a let's have a national voter law contrary to the constitution Let's get rid of the 180-year filibuster, jump the 60-year, 50-state union, maybe get rid of the 150-year nine-court. And they want to evolve us into a direction that they feel better reflects the new person, the new man, so to speak. And then finally, we have globalization where people. That's an old idea, cosmopolitanism. Socrates talked about it. The idea that our first allegiances are with people in the world rather than the people right next to it.
0: Right. So in your book, Victor, you very cleverly went about this. You break down citizenship into six headings. Uh, the first one is what you call peasants, which you describe as to be self-governing. Citizens must be economically autonomous.
1: Yeah. If you don't have people who are economically self-sufficient, and we're not all going to own 40 acres in a barn and produce our own food. Right. But if you're not an independent trucker or you don't have a good salary or you don't own a home or you don't have a little bit of savings in the bank, Mm -hmm. then you're going to be leveraged. You're going to be dependent on a government program or you're going to be unduly impressed with affluent people that you might want to cultivate ties with. And so the middle class, half the country dies with less than $10,000 in net worth. Right. About half the country owes up to about $10,000, roughly the same amount in credit card debt. Mm -hmm ages, of, as I point out, the age when we marry, the age when we have our first child, the age when we buy a home, that's all been prolonged or delayed as we have this prolonged adolescence. And then finally, it's we have 1.7 trillion dollars in aggregate student debt. And that's really a, that retards this development into a full autonomous citizen.
0: Mm -hmm. Your second category, Victor, is residents, which you describe as, quote, states must privilege citizens over mere residents. This sounds like we're going back to your book, Metzifornia. uh, Metzifornia. Yeah, uh,
1: I mean, it is very relevant today when people who are not U.S. citizens flying in from Afghanistan are not asked of themselves. No one says to them, you're going to be guest in our new country. We're in the middle of a pandemic as a favor to us. Would you please be vaccinated? We're going to require, that's all we're going to require of you is a vaccination. Mm-hmm. We won't do that of non-citizens. And the same thing applies, of course, to the border, on the right. southern border. But we are going to require all federal employees that are citizens and all soldiers who may face a dishonorable discharge to get vaccinated. The vaccination is not the point. It's just the asymmetrical treatment that we have for citizens. Not and you and I today cannot decide. Well, I don't like that federal law Right. And so I'm coming into the United States. My first act is to violate federal law A second is to reside here illegally. My third is probably to get some type of identification. That's not legitimate or authentic and so we We have really privileged the resident. I can't think of very many things the citizen has over the legal resident I mean You used to be a passport and citizens could go as they please, but you can come across the southern border without any passport, serve in the military, you can get federal funds and the only thing that I can see now is you can't hold office unless you're a citizen, but you can vote
0: in certain school board elections. I was going to say voting has now become fair game for non-citizens as well. Uh, Your third category, Victor, is tribes, which you describe as why citizens should give up their own ethnic, racial, and tribal primary identities. That's what I'd like to draw a little bit, Victor, because it seems we're in an age where everything has to be uh, identified by your race, your historical background. Yeah, I think
1: there's a a lot of ignorance historically and contemporarily that that most people feel that tribalism is something that, um, works in a multiracial society and whether it's ancient Corsaira or whether it's rwanda or the former yugoslavia a multiracial state does not work unless people give up their primary identity and most countries that ha- have tried it or consider it reject it so Or they use a level of force that's not compatible with the United States. So the Roman Empire was a multiracial empire. So was the Ottoman Empire. So was the Soviet Empire. And they were willing to kill people to force a communist or Islamic identity. We're not willing, of course, thank God to do that. So we invite people voluntarily to give up their tribal associations to accept a new civic identity. Mm -hmm. And when most countries think that's absurd. You and I, Bill, will never be fully accepted as a citizen of Mexico, Colombia, Japan, China, Iran, because we don't look like those people. And so most people in the world today say that we favor people of our tribe that are synonymous with our nation. We don't. Mm -hmm. But we do ask of people, and we've had a long history of racism. We went from 94% Europeans Uh, I should say British Europeans to continental Europeans to Eastern Europeans to Latin Americans and Asians and Jews So we keep trying to redefine ourselves as a fully multiracial society where everybody has an equality of opportunity Mm -hmm. But the problem we're having is that uh, a lot of people believe that once we have political equality that we have to have full equality and right. Aristotle talked about that—that that we should be equal in every element of our life, economic, social, cultural. And if we're not, it's disproportionate, and that disproportion implies some type of implicit bias, systemic. So we use all of these adjectives now: bill, implicit, systemic, mm-hmm. uh, for the lack of overt, identifiable racism. Right. That should tell us that it's getting very hard to find. When you have a trigger warning or a safe space or you're accused of being systemically or implicitly racist that means that nobody is out there and really it's an anger that we're not completely uh, equal in every aspect of our lives and this is considered race and the irony is that there are a lot of class disequilibriums in this society and we've just mm-hmm. forgotten about them and we've substituted race and and as I point out in the book, you can be very, very wealthy. And some of the greatest woke warriors today are Miss Quellars with four homes, the founder of BLM, or Mr. Right. Kendi, $20,000 for something like you and I are doing. He charges on Zoom. Uh, or LeBron James worth a billion dollars. Or the Obamas from their uh, $24 million uh, market's vineyard estate. This woke revolution doesn't have much to do with classes. We saw it, the AOC dress, or the Emmings or the Oscars, et cetera, et cetera,
0: et cetera. Right, Victor, the fourth of six categories is what you call the unelected, which you describe as how an unelected federal bureaucracy has absorbed much of the power of the U.S. Congress. Uh, is that another way, Victor, of saying the deep state?
1: Yeah, administrative state, deep state. Forty percent of us, Bill, work for local, state, or federal government. We have over 2 million federal employees Um, they're not elected by us. They, as regulators in the EPA or the IRS, they can make a ruling that expands on a judicial uh, act, and they can interpret in a way that has the force of law, and then they can be an executive and enforce it, and then they can be a judge and adjudicate whether you are right or wrong in disobeying, for example. And they have the full force of the federal government. They're unaccountable, too, because uh, if I were to say who were the most uh, powerful people who were unelected of the administrative state, I would say, again, Sean Brennan, James Clapper, Andrew McKay, Robert Mueller, General Milley, Lois Lerner, and they all have things in common where they have either misled the public or they have violated the statute or they have been less than candid under oath. Sometimes admittedly so, and yet there were never any repercussions because we feel that they have so much authority and power, much more than an elected congressperson or perhaps even a senator.
0: Right. The two final categories, Victor, which you've already alluded to. One is evolutionaries. You describe that as unapologetic grand architects of dismantling constitutional citizenship, inordinately represented by political activists, media grandees, legal profession, academics. And then the final category, Victor, globalists, which you describe as the current fad that Americans are transitioning into citizens of the world. This all leads to one question, Victor. How did America get to this point? And please don't say this is a product of political polarization, which just seems to be the cop-out at all times. Well, we're just divided in our politics, and that's reflection here. I think there's something larger afoot here, Victor, and that's just a cultural transformation of this yes, country.
1: It, it is, and I think there's three or four culprits here. The first is that we gave up on what I would call a tragic view of education that we taught people the basic skills, analysis, literacy, computation, the inductive method, and then we allowed them to come to their own conclusions. We said, you know, that's not fair are right. deductively going to start with a premise k through 12 and we're going to tell you how unfair or how wrong and so these students today who are now college students or young adults if you or i said would you please tell me what gettysburg is i'm not asking pickett's charge right or who general meade was or who sherman was in the march to the sea but they can't tell you these things they cannot tell you what the bill of rights are they cannot tell you what a filibuster is. So they don't have the basic tools of knowledge because they felt that there were things that were more important. So they combined the worst really of advocacy and ignorance and arrogance. And then globalization was great. It gave a Western veneer throughout the world. But what happened was people like us that are talking on Zoom, that are in the media or academia Mm -hmm. or advocacy or law or investment or entertainment we did well we had this bi-coastal eight seven billion person market the eu was next to the east coast and the asian tigers were next to us but anybody who was muscular small farming assembly manufacturing they didn't do so well. They were outsourced the steel mills, the small farms. I'm looking out the window at my hometown, I was just thinking, where in the world did Upright Harvester that used to make elevation platforms for go? Where did Fruhoff trailer go? Where did Del Monte Canary go? Well, they all went overseas or to Mexico or Latin America. And then we we confused cause and effect. We said, Well, if you lost your job, it must because you, must have been because you were deplorable and irredeemable. And then we have this great challenge we have 50 million nearly 50 million people that were not born in the united states Mm -hmm. it's the highest percentage and number in in real numbers i think that we've ever had and we have 27 percent of the state of california was not born in the united states and they are either legal or illegal uh, residents some are now naturalized citizens so that was an enormous challenge and we should have done what we had always done pretty well You chose to come to our country. We didn't make that decision for you But we're here to tell you that as the host we're going to acculturate you to the constitution To the norms of citizenship To the laws of this country and you're going to be treated no better no worse than anybody who's been here six generations And we didn't do that and we didn't integrate and assimilate people as quickly, but we actually told them that the moment you set foot in the united states you have grievances against the body politic and its customs and its tradition Mm -hmm. so somebody was coming from mexico and died dire poverty from oaxaca state and had been a victim as an indigenous person of enormous racism as everybody knows in in mexico exists the moment they set foot here we have told you you were part of a, a prejudiced a a constituency that suffered enormous bias and you will suffer enormous bias and we're here to give you repertory efforts but we're not here to assimilate you or tell you that you chose a different culture other than your own as your primary identity we used to do that was called a brutal bargain gave that up and now we're living in a divided country both by tribe and by class and this, I think it's a result of the educational system and globalization. And also, I, I left out one key ingredient, and that is this tech revolution, the ability that you can communicate with anybody all over the world, or you can say things uh, and communicate with email or Twitter, or you can stay in today. I can stay in this room right here. I don't have to see or talk to anybody in the flesh, right. but I know what's going on, and I can exercise a lot of influence and authority without ever having to look somebody in the eye or actually see their expressions or be face-to-face. with
0: them. I'd like to point out, Victor, that back in the 1960s when you and I were getting our educations, it was not uncommon in American high schools to take uh, for students to take up to three separate courses on government and civics. Uh, today here in our California, Victor, the state spends about 10 times as much money uh, teaching ethnic studies than it actually does civics. So that's kind of a, I think kind of a sad statement. Let me run this theory by you, Victor. Um, I think to have a community, one needs commonality. And I apologize if I sound like Jesse Jackson when I try to throw those words together. Uh, But what I mean by commonality is shared experience. This ties into the very excellent book he wrote about World War II. You talk to people of that generation, the greatest generations, Tom Brokaw calls them. And you see a couple of themes emerging for them. Number one, they were involved in a common effort, a war. A war against fascism, a global war. And then secondly, Victor, especially if you talk to people who survived and endured the Great Depression, you notice they have certain characteristics. They tend to be, I don't say tight with their money, but they tend to be very fiscally conservative because they didn't have money back in the day. They don't march down to Apple and buy the latest gadget just because it's been you know, dangled in front of them. They're careful with the money. The point is, Victor, these people have something in common. Common. You could put them in a room and they could quickly talk about shared experiences. Today in America, we don't have that. Now, maybe in theory, that should have been 9 11 and what happened on that terrible day, but that doesn't seem to happen. The question is, Victor, how are you going to bring Americans together if we are more pluribus than we are unima?
1: We haven't. And so, Yesterday, I walked through my hometown, what I grew up in, and I looked at all these abandoned or nearly abandoned buildings. And one of them was the Elks Club, the Masonic Hall, and the Grange, the Portuguese Hall. There were all of these civic areas where people, I would I spent most of my youth in this house, ferrying my grandparents to these social clubs.
0: Well, Victor, Victor my, fa- my father was a pin boy at a turnverein in McKeesport, yeah. Pennsylvania, a German social club.
1: Yeah. And I know, I mean, my grandmother did not go to college, right. but she she hosted the Walnut Improvement Club. So Walnut Growers <laughs> had an improvement and they would discuss books and they would talk about fashion and they would do this. I can remember going to this local school three miles away where it was 90% then of Hispanics. And we all had these courses where we spent mr evans would say you're going to come up in front of the room and shake my hand and look me in the eye and say hello mr heaven i'm gabe dominguez i'm victor hansen and if you didn't have a firm handshake and look at the person in the eye you had to do it again Mm -hmm. and then we had a class called diction we want to have a common parlance so the idea was to how do we get these just very diverse people from all over you know There were a lot of people from India and how do we have them a shared experience? And then we had heroes of America and they would say, this week at sports, we're going to read a little biography of Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth and then the next, next, and next. That's gone because our elites, and I do think it's an elite phenomenon, have had this top-down woke revolution. And it's not just the last two years, it's been going on where we we forget about the pre-modern world, we of we the affluent present who are leisured and affluent. We say, we're going to apply our contemporary standards to very poor pre-industrial people. And if they don't make our expectations of what consists of morality, we give them no slack at all, not, not for the intent, not for they were 60% good. They have to be 99.9% meet our expectations or they're racist, homophobes, transgender phobia. Okay. And it's always with the expectation, as I say in the book, that this generation won't face the same scrutiny from a future generation that may have a very different idea of morality than we do and may not cut us any slack that we do barbaric things like put chemotherapy poison in our bodies or radiation for cancer when they thought, how primitive were those people? We have these new genes like splicing techniques so we can cure it like that in 50 years they're going to they're going to apply their standards to us and they're going to find us just as wanting as we find people once you go once you turn history into melodrama rather than
0: tragedy Well, how do we bring the country together, Victor? Because it seems to me that, well, two obvious solutions. Number one, you could restore the draft if you want to and have people serve, but maybe that would become a mess very quickly. You'd have carve-outs and exemptions and so forth. You could do national service like Israel, but now, Victor, I think we're probably looking at the spectacle of people going to Appalachia and teaching critical race theory, which is maybe not most pressing national issue. So what, what do you think the fix is?
1: I don't think that you can trust the therapeutic state invest money, redistribute it to them, and then expect that they're not going to be highly ideological. Right. We saw that and even as early as the New Deal. So what are we going to do? And I think it has to be government incentives, but not government people or government programs. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that we should say to people, if you want to buy a home, we have the FHA and things like that. That's a, we're going to give incentives to buy a home. We're going to give incentives to get married if you want. We're going to give incentives if you have children. We do that. But uh, we're also going to give incentives for people who play by the rules. We have this weird, weird idea that, you know, people walk in stores and commit crimes and that's there's no consequences. But I think. We should say to ourselves: people who do not have a criminal record or people who uh, have not filed for bankruptcy or all of these things that make people um, good citizens. What we're doing now is the opposite. We're saying that the state has such a problem with people who do not obey the laws that it's existential and we can't do anything. So we're going to go after the law abiding citizen. So if I go out here and walk down this street, it's covered with trash, it's covered with litter, it's covered with appliances. So we have people who are residents who come out and they throw their weekly trash on the side of the road. Right. When you talk to the sheriff or you talk to the constable or the state EPA people, they don't know what to do. They right. say, well, they have no money. Or if we try to go after them, we it's a political act. However, by the way, Victor, if you want to put solar panels on your uh, building, we will come after you and we will regulate you and we will find you and we will make sure you follow the letter of the law because that will charge you with a misdemeanor because we can't psychologically or financially or material or legally go after the felon. And that's what this society is starting to do now. Right. And it only inculcates more, more disobedience and, and lawlessness. So we don't have an equal application of a law. That would really help citizens if they just said, these, I'll give you one example. I was told that to get on a flight, by now I had to have a bear, a little bear on your license, the the real license. And when you go to apply at that DMV, and it's not fun. You have to show that you have rental and power bills and your passport. Mm -hmm. And then I said to myself, when COVID, they'll just give exemptions. And, of course, they have. They just said, well, you know, you, you can't. You can go to the DMV anytime you want, but apparently not enough people got them and they would not be able to fly and there are no consequences like there's no consequences for crossing the border. there's no consequences for anything. right? And so I think I believe it or not, Bill, I think the equal application and full enforcement of statutes and laws would give people a renewed confidence that the system is fair. And it works when we see these people go on television and they say my son is a lieutenant colonel And he spoke out and broke the chain of command about the culpability in afghanistan And he's now right. in jail and yet The people who left 85 billion dollars worth of training and equipment investment Nothing happens to them and they and right. they're
0: all their stories are contradictory
1: and there's no consequences Then that erodes any effort at
0: unity Right. So the word I think uh, uh, we could sum this up with is deterrence, which is a topic of a column you wrote last week. Uh, Not deterrence in the classic Cold War sense, Victor, but deterrence in terms of crime, which you refer to the idea if you go looting a pharmacy in San Francisco, that you're not just going to get a speeding ticket for it unless you steal more than 900 bucks, you've committed a crime. Deterrence in terms of the border, Victor, where we see people coming north, not just because of uh, opportunity, but also because they see a bat signal up in the air that the border is open. So what you're saying here, there have to be consequences for actions.
1: There has to be. I mean, it's very sophisticated and chic to say, well, walls don't work, although there's no evidence that they haven't worked because they dominate history. But my point right. is that basically where the, the wall, the reconstituted wall ended, illegal immigration now started. Right. I mean, we... Pretty much Arizona, New Mexico, and California can handle the borders should they wish. They have Mm -hmm. mostly a wall now. And we had the engagement of Mexico where we really gave them some incentives, but also some possible consequences if they let people in transit go through their country, which they had pretty much stopped. And we got a renewal. of uh, We got catch and release canceled. Then this, this new administration said, come on in. We, there's no, you catch you, we'll release you again. You don't have to prove you're a refugee. There's no wall. These are all 19th century antiquarian ideas. And now we got human nature being what it is. There was no deterrent. Anybody can come across. We've made a mockery of the engineer in India waiting five years to get a legal permit to come to the United States. And so we, we reward people who break the law. And that's a, a, a great deal of cynicism involved.
0: So, Victor, in the title of your book, the word dying is featured prominently here. And I'm kind of uh, stuck in that word. You didn't choose endangered as one might use for species. Dying suggests that it's not coming back. Is that is that the case? Is citizenship gone? Or a citizen, is there is there a more appropriate word than dying? Should we say languishing, troubled?
1: Well, I, I'm i not quite where. Uh, classical Historians of Rome had this phrase. I think two of them that Mm -hmm. the uh, medicine is worse than the disease Uh But if you wanted to restore citizenship, right, you would need a Charismatic president and the party behind him that was in favor of that agenda and they would have to take a level of abuse That is staggering because so many people are invested in non-citizenship or the the idea of mere residents or tribalist or right. constantly changing the constitution. Is somebody really willing to say to Harvard University, Stanford University, we're not going to listen to uh, your law professor who says that we're going to get rid of two senators in every state. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, we're not going to get rid of the electoral college. It's been there for 233 years. And we're not going to pack the in And take that on and then say, you know what? I don't identify people by their race. I identify people by their common American uh, identity? Or are you going to say, you know, I really don't think that 1.7 trillion uh, investment of the federal government and this debt on students was a good deal because the universities should not be subsidized by teaching things other than what they're supposed to. I mean, they're supposed to create an educated citizen, but One thing we don't talk about, the more woke and ideologically driven these students are, if you look by any barometer, SAT scores or anything, the students are less prepared as we would expect, given there's only 24 hours in a day. So you'd have to take on a number of of institutions and you'd have to be far more skillful than Donald Trump was. You'd have to be very careful what you said. You'd have to build constituencies. I think you could make that. I didn't say the dead citizen. I said the dying
0: citizen. Dying citizen. Okay. Yeah. So the citizen can the citizen can recover that.
1: I think so. I mean, there's there's periods where we have had these renaissance. and right. if I when I first wrote the book, I started to look at things, and and there was a moment uh, in I started the book in the summer of 2019 in the fall, and I said to myself. I'm pessimistic, but my gosh, after three and a half years, there's almost no illegal immigration in December of 2020. It almost vanished. And then I said to myself, wow, this was the first quarter in 12 years that middle-class wages increased. Oh, my gosh, this is a record low minority unemployment for Hispanics and Blacks and record, almost record peacetime employment. I thought, wow, we look abroad in the Abrams Accord, And whoever we thought that Gulf states might recognize Israel and wow, we were the largest natural gas and oil producer in the world and people have affordable fuel. And and then 2020 came along. And then 10, 2020, and all of these uh, insidious challenges were set off. They were like IEDs we knew were there. But when you added, we might have been able to survive a 1918 like Spanish flu pandemic and maybe a ne- our first national quarantine, and maybe our first self-induced recession, but an election with 102 million mail-in ballots, 62%, we've never done that. And then a, an acrimonious, and confidential president, and then the George Floyd riots, we had 120 days yeah. of looting and arson. Mm-hmm. It, that was too much, I think, to, to endure. And it set, set these pre-existing challenges off like firecrackers or IED. Yeah,
0: you're referring to the mostly peaceful protest, I think, Victor.
1: Yeah, most, or what I think General Milley called them penny packet, penny packet protest.
0: Let's spend a minute on General uh, Milley. And the question, Victor, is what makes a good citizen? And is General Milley a good citizen? Because he'll tell you that what he has done is because he cares about the republic.
1: Well, if you... I'm not in a position to judge his citizenship outside of his career. I don't know if he has a record or what he does. But I will tell you that as the chairman of the Joint Chief, he has failed miserably his job. And I say that very carefully. Mm -hmm. And I'll be very thorough about it. In 1947 and 53 and Goldwater Nichols, I think 2006, it said that uh, the chairman of the Joint Chief was going to be refined, an advisory role. And so would the Joint Chiefs. It was in reaction to uh, World War II and uh, the idea that the the chairman that was new, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs had been a little bit too active and impinged on the prerogatives of of the individual operation. And they were outside the chain of command. Okay, right. we know that. So General Milley comes along and he decides that after he's talked to Nancy Pelosi that Donald Trump may be crazy. Now he's denied that, but we have the transcript. And he says that he's going to go call the senior officers and he's going to say that you have protocols and procedures, but they come through me mm-hmm. and you're not too extra Well, that is violating the chain of command. That's not his role. And then he's going to further become a diplomat and call his Chinese counterpart. You know, as if George Marshall in 1940 calls uh, uh, General Halder of OKW and says, You know, Franklin Roosevelt is not as healthy as they're telling us. He's he's not well. And I'm afraid we're going to have a preemptive war because he wants to get us in a war to help England. And I just want to tell you that uh, this is messy, this democracy. And if we do any preemptory thing, General Halder will tell you in advance. So Germany and the United States don't go to war that would be unthinkable but that's kind of what he did and so he violated those statutes okay and then the uniform code of military justice article 88 and that's been violated as a joke says that no active or, or retired high ranking officer can disparage the commander in chief you can't call him hitler can't call him mussolini you can't say he's a liar like our retired generals have done okay but general milley Was the primary or a chief source for three tell-all books and and he's quoted in three of these uh, Kind of muckraking new Exposes that Donald Trump was a Mein Kampf like figure. That's right. That's what he doesn't hasn't denied that he said that the epic times uh, People and Newsmax were terrorist organizations now He said he can't recall that but apparently he's written it down somewhere according to some of the exchange we saw yesterday And so he's a very politicized general, he's violated the chain of command. And when he said that uh, he's going after white rage, and he's read Professor Kindy, and we shouldn't be worried about that because he reads Marx and Mao to learn about hostile doctrines that he must be aware of as a chairman of the Joint Chief, as an advisor to the president. Of course, we say to ourselves, well, they're, you're reading them to inculcate opposition to Marxism or 70 million being people killed by the cult. But you're reading Kendi to to spread it, to disseminate it. Mm-hmm. And it's it, you're incoherent, General. And you're saying that, that the white working class are the, the target group that you're going to look at. And then you're telling us, along with General Austin, that you believe in disparate impact and proportional representation because you keep saying America's going to look like us and you're going to make steady. Okay, that's fine. But you've just alienated the one group that disproportionately at double their numbers in the population dies in Afghanistan Iraq, the white working class. 75% roughly, more or less, in Afghanistan and Iraq were white male working class people. They only represent 35% of the population. And when you say that, people say, well, why are you talking about race? Because you are talking about race, kind of, but you're not talking about where it leads to. So General Milley really wants to go down that tribal, destructive, nihilistic route. Then somebody is going to say, well, are you going through Antifa members? Are you going through BLM and see uh, this Marxist organization. Since you warned us that you read Marx and since the founder of BLM is a declared Marxist, you obviously are going to look for Marxists. But of course, he's not going to do that. So he, he's very, I think he's a very dangerous person because he doesn't tell the truth. He's political. He had a photo op with the president, as everyone does. And then he said he, he made a mistake and all the former people, the Joint Chiefs said, we don't want to militarize Washington and clear out Lafayette Square like Trump did and he's going to use tear gas. And lo and behold, the inspector general of the interior department says, no, there was no there no presidential order to clear it out. There was no tear gas used. And as we get an apology from General Milley and the former joint chiefs, no. Are they aware that Colin Powell, an iconic chairman of the joint chiefs, 1993 calls up, excuse me, 1992 calls up, or 91 calls up uh, George H.W. Bush, as you remember, and says, I got 5,000 Marines for the Rodney King riots. And they sent them into downtown L.A., federal troops. And then the same General Milley and General Mullen and General Myers and General Dempsey and General McChrystal and General, all of them, who said, don't dare put federal troops, Donald Trump. Okay, that's a legitimate question. But when 25,000 federal troops were ordered in by Joe Biden, they didn't say a word. So whatever our politics are, we have a woke, political, politicized military, and General Milley has a lot to answer for for that.
0: Well, at the end of the day, Victor, General Milley will say, as I did what I did, I do what I do because I care about America. I think I'm being a good American. I'm a good citizen. Which begs the question, Victor, how do we define what is a good citizen? Is as simple as saying that I pay my taxes, I obey the law, I'm kind to others, I'm a good Samaritan, or is it more complicated than that?
1: Well, it starts with you, you obey the law. You right. obey the law. And so Joe Biden would be much more persuasive. Donald Trump didn't really raise taxes, but he wouldn't have been very persuasive because he spent a lot of effort trying to get out of them. Joe Biden says, all you trillionaires that don't exist, pay your fair share. We find out he sort of welched out on a half, uh, $500,000 in taxes on payroll tax, no no less. So I think the question is, follow law, General Milley, you're an advisor. You can't say on Monday that I'm not responsible for Afghanistan because I have no operational command but on Tuesday, call on your officers and say nobody's going to operate the nuclear protocols unless I'm involved. Can't do that. So follow the law first, and then uh, tell the truth. And don't say as a don't appear before Congress with all these ribbons. And when asked directly, you were a source for this book. It says you said that Epic Times and Newsmax were terrorist organizations. Did you say that? Did you write? I don't recall mm-hmm. don't be James Comey and say for 245 times I don't recall under oath or right. don't be say Robert Mueller the the twin foundations of his investigation GPS and Christopher Steele's dossier when asked that say I have no idea what you're talking about I don't know anything about that dossier right. never heard of GPS that's that that destroys so- so citizenship,
0: citizenship is tantamount to accountability, is what you're
1: saying? Yes, it is. And nobody that well, I was driving all day yesterday to speak in L.A. and just listening to these generals, you know, it's, well, you know, we don't want to really say we'll talk in private session, confidential, but, you know, it's kind of the president. We gave the advice and he didn't listen. Well, you know, it's also kind of the State Department.
0: right?
1: But you know what? We kind of did, when we had a choice and we ran the logistics, we had a good evacuation. No, you had the worst military humiliating defeat in American history since 1975. Can't one person just say we blew it? We didn't. We didn't resign, or we didn't make our voices. We sh- we were saying it was pr- progress was being made.
0: The, the army wouldn't collapse. Nobody can do that. Nobody. It's, it's the worst weasel words in Washington, Victor. Not to the best of my recollection. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We have just a few minutes left, Victor. So one final question. Um, I look at citizenship, Victor, and I see a competition of sorts. I see a competition that the left is waging and that they want Americans to be ultimately citizens of the world. What does yes. that mean? Well, it means, for example, on climate change, America will go along with what the rest of the world wants to do on climate change, even if we really don't address the problem in ways that are practical in terms of what India and China are doing, let's say. On the other hand, Victor, there are people who want the United States to be citizens of the United States, America first, and both the left and the right. And compete in this space. We've seen this over Afghanistan, for example, where Donald Trump wanted us out of foreign entanglements. Joe Biden wanted us out of foreign entanglement. Who's winning this competition right now, Victor? Is it citizens of the world or citizens of the U.S.? Oh, I think
1: the citizens of the U.S. are winning. The Republican Party has dropped its globalist rhetoric um, because, I mean, when you get to a state where Anthony Blinken is going to invite in the U.N. to adjudicate whether we're racist or not, the Secretary of State, Or you have the International Criminal Court was going to adjudicate whether we're following the rules of war in Afghanistan, or the Paris Climate Accord with polluters like China in it, or there's a million and a half people in camps as we speak, and we're supposed to be in an accord with China. Mm -hmm. So we get back to the idea, is there a thing like the Constitution anywhere else? Are there free people that are transparent and and, Mm self-critical and checks and balances in their government? I don't see it other than in somewhat in the European Union, that's in Europe, and I see some in Asia, Japan, and westernized countries, the former British Commonwealth here and there, but more or less of the 190 nations in the world, about half are uh, illiberal and autocratic or monarchies or theocracies or dictatorships. And why in the world would you entrust a very wonderful system of 233 years to be predicated on the consensus from that group. And uh, so most of these countries, or at least half of them, never vote unless they come to the UN in New York, and then they're all for voting, but they represent a dictatorial regime. So that it's a, uh, it's a tick, I think, of the wealthy and the highly educated. Most people have innate distrust for different forms of government that they feel are wanting in comparison with their own constitution. And then they will say to you, why aren't people going to China? Why don't people go to Russia? Why don't people even immigrate to Japan and South Korea? Why do they all come here? And the answer is one of two things. They don't have as much freedom or or stability or economic opportunity, or the countries that do have that are not going to let people in because they feel that they find people of different races or ethnic backgrounds, if you're in Japan or South Korea or Mexico, disruptive to what they feel is their ethnic essence. But we're, we're so unique. It's so, it's so What I'm baffled by in conclusion is that we're the most welcome people. We are the most generous people. Mm-hmm. We let in more people than all countries in the world, and yet we are the most criticized. And I think that's because... We project this idea that it's not it's not sophisticated, it's not complex, it's not nuanced to say, you know what, I'm proud to be an American. The American's better than the alternative. I don't have to be perfect to be good. I don't judge the past by the rules of the present. If you don't like it, I have no worries at all about that.
0: A question. I'd, rather have a
1: question. Your, I'd rather have your respect than your, your, your fealty. And, and a lot of Americans used to feel that way, but very few
0: do anymore. Final question for you, Victor. Reading a book by Victor Davis Hanson is in many regards like being taught by Professor Victor Davis Hanson. So, for those of you who are going to buy this book, Victor, what what are they going to take away? What if, what will be their what will be their great discovery having having read this yeah. wonderful book about? Since? Well, what
1: I I try to do, Bill, is that with all this buzz uh, and buzz and cable news and everything mm-hmm. about the border and and Afghanistan and you know, uh, inflation, identity politics. I'm trying to suggest to the reader, we don't just want to write about it within our own little brief experience, but I'm trying to each chapter say, this is a old idea. Citizens, the history in Greece and Rome, what the founders thought about it, what the constitution said so that uh, they can take their own experience of the last awful two years and say themselves, well, it's not just that I think there should be a border. There, There's a long history of people who said if you didn't have a border, it wouldn't work. And it didn't work. Or it's not just me who thinks I shouldn't identify by my, my superficial appearance, but it doesn't seem to work anywhere in the world. Look at there and look at it here. And I'm not an, a dummy who say the middle class is important because Aristotle was no idiot. Tocqueville was no idiot. And they said exactly what I think. So I'm trying to to take the reader in each chapter and and prep him or prep her and say, this is the larger intellectual historical framework of the issue across time and space. And this is what we're doing right now. And you decide whether it's going to work or not. Mm -hmm. Of course, I, I, I'm not entirely neutral. I wouldn't have written the book. I I editorial and so I don't think this is going to work. Mm -hmm. You decide.
0: And Victor, you do a wonderful job. Congratulations. No surprise there. Good luck on the book tour. Congratulations again on the book. I hope to see you on campus in the near future. I
1: will be there. Thank you for having me, Bill.
0: I appreciate it. The title of the book, again, is The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization are Destroying the Idea of America. Here it is for you. Here's the book. You can find The Dying Citizen for purchase online or at a bookstore. You go to Amazon Effect. There's an entire Victor Davis Hanson page. Victor, I got lost in the count of how many books, but you're into the 20s, my friend. You are a prolific writer, no question about that. Victor is also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Victor Davis Hanson, Hanson spelled H-A-N-S-O-N. He has his own website, victorhanson.com. You can also go to the Hoover Institution's website, which is www.hoover.org, and you can sign up for what we call our daily report, which will give you the best of Victor's work, his interviews, his many media appearances, uh, every day in your inbox. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Bill Whalen. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you again the next time we do a book club. Take care. Thank you, Bill. Oh,